Welcome to Exhale, a podcast series where we explore topics on spirometry and respiratory care. Your hosts are Mark Russell, Marketing Communications Manager, and Jansen Lanier, National Sales Manager and Respiratory Therapist for Vitalgraph US, a global leader in respiratory diagnostics. Today, Mark and Jansen have a discussion with Mark L. Rubin. Mark is a board-certified asthma educator and a consultant for the Texas Asthma Control Collaborative. His experience with asthma and immunology give him insight into the problems of inhaler techniques. We discuss the issues, cost, and impact of inhaler use and training. Well, welcome, Mark, to our podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here for everybody. Please give us a little background on yourself, education, experience, and current responsibilities. I became a registered pharmacist graduating from the University of Illinois College of Pharmacy back in 1976 and practice initially in a teaching hospital at the University of Illinois and then moving on to become a retail pharmacist. As my maturity grew, I became very interested in people with breathing disorders and I became a board certified asthma educator in 2004. From there, I became a member of a board of directors of the Chicago Asthma Consortium and the Suburban Asthma Consortium outside of Chicago, as well as then going on to joining the four national and international pulmonary organizations addressing issues of asthma, allergy, and obstructive lung disorder. Wonderful. Here's the first real question here. How many people use their inhaler incorrectly? I know we've seen it kind of across the board. There's been TV shows and movies that kind of joke about people using it incorrectly, but but let's get to the science behind it. How many people use their inhaler incorrectly? Uh, I was actually reviewing some of the statistics and there is a professor who is nationally and internationally renowned in this work and her paper cited four to 94% of the patients use their devices incorrectly. So basically looking at different age groups, educational levels, whether it's asthma, which could also be intermittent asthma, depending if it's seasonality or obstructive lung disorders, where they have a chronic evolving condition that gets progressively worse. So a number of those factors contributed to which percentage, and it's really looking in the different groups that you start seeing the variability of it. What are the factors that contribute to someone using their inhaler incorrectly or poor inhaler technique? The first thing I look at is poor training by the instructor to start with. When you have the person teaching, whether no matter what part of healthcare, whether a physician, a nurse, respiratory therapist, pharmacist, mood point, they have not themselves learned the proper technique, then they are unlikely to be able to teach the person the proper technique. And to me, when you've got the instructor not being properly educated and trained, then you have the downhill spiral of one after another. One of the things I see is a failure of them to use a program called TeachBack, which I've instructed on. And TeachBack is where the instructor not only visually demonstrates how to use the inhaler, but they explain the why behind every step of that use. So when the patient has gone through this part, the patient then has to repeat back, not just visually demonstrating how to use it, but they also have to explain why each step is taken, whether it's exhaling deeply, shaking the device, position of the device, how long you breathe, how quickly you breathe, 
and then the breathing out, all those steps and the whys behind it, that becomes critical and many do not do that at all. In addition, in the guidelines, it specifies that the patient should be re-evaluated on every visit, not just once or twice, but every visit, because they sometimes, without that reinforcement, lose that skill, and you've got to reinforce it to bring it back fully. Sure. There's also the getting past the teachers. The other complicating issues are low literacy rates, inadequate time to really train the patient, which with our healthcare system today, the insurance companies want to run healthcare like McDonald's, how many patients per minute. You can't teach like that. Failure to provide proper learning tools as far as give them a handout so they can follow up and read it, uh, videos that they could watch giving them web links if they've got the technology that they can visualize and hear again. Also, patients can have poor attention span, especially when they're not well. If you're sick and obviously tense and everything else, you're not paying much attention. And then again, that lack of follow-up is a critical aspect. Absolutely. With that being said, is there a standardization of training for inhaler technique? Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm getting at, is I'm seeing it kind of across the board, everybody's a little bit different. Is there a governing body that could or should kind of put something standardization out there? The National Asthma Education Certification Board has the people like myself who are board certified that they want to get that nailed down. It's always being reinforced to do the verification with each time. But I see a lot of variability, even from the national organizations that might have web links. And I remember that a nurse I had an argument with having to do with one of the techniques. And it's just like, you're kidding me. You are at the leading pulmonary hospital in the country. Yep. And you're using an outdated technique. Right. When you get to the various devices, I mean, meter dose inhalers are pretty straightforward because the design of a regular meter dose inhaler, that's consistent. You get past the meter dose inhaler from the mist inhalers to the dry powders and all the variations in devices. It's crazy. The only standard they have really done on the dry powder inhalers, which changed, is if a person twists it with other methodology into action and if they twist it again without inhaling first, it discards the first amount of the medication so they don't overdose. And in the earliest models, that wasn't the case. You saw variability. But there are so many different devices. It can be really confusing. And companies come out, and they don't, they're not consistent. I remember asking at one presentation I went to, why at the end, in spite of handing everybody demo units, did they not show at that lecture how to use the demo unit? Right. And when I spoke to the lead person, they said, the government doesn't allow us to do that during these sessions. And it's like, what? <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? Here today, the doctors don't have time to see the reps many times. So when they do see them, it's a very short window. And again, there's inadequate training when you just have a tiny window of time. Sure. A lot of the uh, listeners today are somewhat new to inhaler training and inhaler technique. So why is inhaler training so important? It's critical because your outcomes are dependent upon it. If there's confusion, even with inhalers, some patients on a meter dose inhaler, 
where you actually have to use a slower inhalation rate. And in a dry powder inhaler, you've got to have a very strong inhalation. They've seen patients using a slow inhalation on dry powder and a rapid inhalation on the meter dose inhaler. Both lead to failure. Failure leads to poor outcomes. Poor outcomes leads to more physician visits, emergency room visits, and hospital visits because of that lack of training. So getting that technique down is part of it. The other aspect, which is critical, is making sure the patient understands the difference between a rescue inhaler and a controller inhaler. And that's where I I had a patient in front of me. She was using her controller inhaler as a rescue and couldn't understand why it wasn't working because it looked almost identical to her rescue inhaler. Do healthcare professionals have significant knowledge or access to proper training for inhalers? Do you have any suggestions? There definitely is access to it. The manufacturers all have web links directly to the product where you can get a handout from it and you can watch the video with an explanation step by step, which is great. And I think the doctors and practitioners, regardless if it's a physician, a deal or otherwise, should always be providing these links to the patients. Whether they do or don't, it's difficult to tell because those are out there. The American Lung Association does it. The pulmonary organizations all do it. So that information is there. But as we all know with the internet, there's also many times other resources where people are putting stuff up and not necessarily putting proper correct technique on there. So many times people are learning from unofficial resources. Usually, if you go to the manufacturer site itself, not some other subsidiary site, you're going to find out exactly how they designed it. Although, to be honest with you, there's one thing I've seen that really bothers me. You are familiar with the meter dose inhalers, and when the person puts in their mouth, they'll be usually looking straight ahead. I've always guided people with the meter dose, actually with any of them, to look up somewhat like you're looking at a clock on the wall, which makes your airway curved for a smooth flow of air, fluid dynamics. When you're looking straight ahead, it's a 90-degree turn, and you get turbulence at the back of the throat, which results in more of the drug being deposited at the back of the throat and not getting deep into the lungs. Actually, he had that on LinkedIn recently with a professor, and he thanked me for the correction. But he did address other issues, which I'd never seen addressed before, which was super. So we both learned something. Do you need to have patients regularly have kind of a refresher course and making sure that they're doing it properly? I don't expect the physician to be doing the training when they're prescribing a medication. I want to make sure when the physician is prescribing that he knows, one, that the patient is going to feel comfortable with it. It's got to be it's teamwork. It's got to be joint decision-making because sure. you've got to address issues of the patient. And that's sometimes overlooked because of patients' fears of inhaled corticosteroids, for instance. There are misconceptions on that. With all those things taken care of in the original dialogue, I expect his staff, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, whatever, they are the ones that really need to be there following through when the patient walks out of the meeting with the physician, that they have the time to sit and properly train. And then on every follow-up visit before the patient sits with the doctor, they are again reevaluated by the person or by their team to ensure, and that way they can communicate to the doctor, yes, their technique was great, or no, it wasn't, which can give you guidance as far as how the patient's condition is improving or not.
as well as in many cases, they sometimes have access to compliance as far as refill data through the insurance companies. Are they being compliant with their medication, which is the compounding factor on success or failure in treating pulmonary disorders? Sure. How do you help patients optimize their inhaler technique? Well, what's your go-to? My go-to is every single time they come to the pharmacy, all of my techs knew that if anybody's getting any type of inhaler, nasal inhaler, lung inhaler, you know, the meter dose, dry powder, nebulizer, I'm automatically called over every time. Even when I've covered other stories, I make it clear to them, they have to have me intervene with them, and I do the teach-back routine. And I've had things happen that and heard that were amazing, that it was laughable that these people were never properly instructed. And one of the huge failures that, excuse the expression, disgusts me, you're familiar with the Medicare STAR program, Mm -hmm. it does not cover asthma and pulmonary disorders. And the big corporate chains, therefore, don't want the pharmacist spending time with the patients with that. Unlike diabetes training, they will pay for the consult and how to use a blood glucose monitor. But this is a critical issue for the number three cause of death is pulmonary. So inadequate staffing at the pharmacy and not allowing the pharmacist time, you have another one of those teach-back opportunities that is not being utilized. So you've got a third of the healthcare programs not in many cases actually contributing to help of the patients follow through and learning proper technique and reinforcement. Got it. Are there some devices out there that can help you train people with inhalers? Can you suggest a few? There is a number of things can be done. One, demo units should always be available. Unfortunately, a lot of pharmacies don't keep them. I actually Mm -hmm. had two toolboxes that had each of the demo devices. So at least you had the actual thing the patient saw. There are some other devices out there. The AIM device by your company for measuring, making sure they get adequate flow with dry powder inhalers, meter dose inhalers and that. It's critical because you want feedback. And another one that's like that is like the in-check, but it's not digital. You're actually seeing a sliding thing. Are you getting the adequate flow? Is it slow enough for an MDI? Is it rapid enough and strong enough for a dry powder inhaler? And there are some other devices in the market by different companies also for evaluating this. But sadly, pharmacies don't have it. I have spoken to pharmacy chains that have their minute clinics uh, and such, and I asked them, why don't you have devices like this when the patient comes in? So the healthcare provider intervening with them has some objective metrics to look at. Because for those who are not in healthcare, when you work with a patient, we call it SOAP, Subjective Objective Assessment and Plan. Subject is what the patient tells us. That's their interpretation. Objective are your numbers, like your blood tests, like your inhalation rates and all that. You need to see that from those two components, you assess what's transpiring, and then you come up with a plan of action. But to not have the objective data, how are you making sound decisions? You're not. You're making assumptions. Sure. Which more. So fortunately, there are the devices out there but are they being utilized in scenarios that they would be of great benefit? Not from what I've seen. Is there an economic burden of poor inhalation technique? And who, who takes on that burden? Oh, that burden is widespread, which is yeah. one of the huge issues that really bothers me about the STAR program. 
How about about six years ago, seven years ago, it was determined the financial burden is 300 billion, with a B, dollars per year in the United States. So you're looking at the patients when they're not using devices properly, that their quality of life is not as improved. And many times the practitioners are adding more medication because they failed to verify their technique was poor or they prescribed a product where they didn't have the ability to use the product properly, which again, the patient's not getting medication. I always equate it, you don't have your pizza delivered by a semi-trailer, and if you're having a big party for the holidays, you're not going to the store on a motorcycle. <laughs> you need the proper delivery device, you need to train the person how to use it, they have to show that they understand how to use it, they've got to be compliant with the medication, we need to understand what is involved and how the controller works and how the rescue works, that they are consistent with the use of the medication, that they've got the knowledge. Uh, one thing I didn't mention earlier, one thing you learn is, as an educator, 50% of treating asthma is a medication. 50% mm -hmm. is knowledge. The patients can either be controlled by their disorder, which is usually due to a lack of knowledge, or they can take control which is from having increased knowledge. That increased knowledge is about your medications, about controlling your environment, both home and at work, what kind of foods, everything, all those intermingling factors play a role for them having improved outcomes with improved quality of life. And one of the things you deal with many times in asthmatics is their perception of good lung function. I had a patient who thought he just did seasonal, and I worked with him, and I had him stay on his controller medication for four more months after the end of winter, which he thought he's done with it. Mm -hmm. uh, three months later, he came back. He said he has never breathed that well in his entire life. Wow. He had no idea because since a lot of times lung function degenerates slowly, your perception of what is good varies. And until you're really under control, you really don't know what you've lost. Your perception isn't there. And the doctor had me taking over his therapy where I was writing guidelines and the doctor followed through and the patient was amazed at the difference in one of the things that takes place. Inhaled steroids, although they may begin working in a matter of a couple of weeks or so, you generally don't reach full benefit for six months. Wow. Well, then you've got to be compliant for six months to reach maximum. Right. And when I work with patients with seasonal allergies and confirm that it's seasonal, I would have them following you know, like pollen.com and the other pulmonary organizations have linked for pollen counts. And there's a number of different apps you could download that gives your specific pollens where you're at. And when you're, you know, you're approaching the season, six weeks before that season starts is when you start your controller medication. Because in the case of asthmatics, or asthmatics even who've gone on to COPD, inflammation is always there. And if you start six weeks before, when it's low, you're knocking it down even further. So you're being proactive in your care, not reactive. So when your bad season comes in, you're doing fine. It's not like, oh God, I have to go to the doctor. I'm really having difficulty sleeping. I'm waking up at three o'clock in the morning. You're ahead of the game. That goes back to knowledge in 50% of improving your outcomes. So knowledge and device, knowledge and disorder, knowledge and controls within your environment, 
all of those factors play huge roles in addition to the medication itself. Great. Well, Mark, this has been great information. Do you have anything else to tell our listeners out there that can give them advice on inhaler techniques and training? I think one of the things, and this sometimes gets difficult also, we who live in urban environments are fortunate for, you've got pulmonologists and allergists around. When you're in rural environments, it might be two hours to get to a specialist. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has evolved now is with the telemedicine has really exploded complements of COVID. I don't think we're ever going to go away from telemedicine now. We agree. And contacting nonprofits like the American Lung Association and contacting the pulmonary organizations, the American Academy of Allergy Asthma Immunology, the American College of Allergy Asthma Immunology, they have resources to guide you and get help. Your insurance company many times will have a nurse line and finding out from them, ask them, have they been trained? I mean, they might be a nurse, they might not have prescribed, but again, like I said earlier, a lot of healthcare providers do not necessarily pass. And the thing is most people have technology, but it's usually smartphones, uh, not necessarily computer, but even with the smartphones or on the smartphone, if you can go to these websites and get the help you need, That is a great thing. And going to the website of the manufacturer of the product you have. So if you have a metered dose inhaler, go to their website on your phone and it'll give you the video of going through. In many cases, that's the first step because it's straightforward and play it over. And there are some other resources. I do like going through the national organizations because they have a lot of research that they are trying to help people who are disadvantaged to be able to get these skills. Good. Well, Mark, thanks for being on our podcast today. I think our listeners will benefit by your information. And again, thank you again for being on. My pleasure. Here for you whenever you need me. You've been listening to Exhale with Vitalograph. Your hosts are Mark Russell and Jansen Lanier. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. Please follow us for upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again on Exhale with Vitalograph.